ahead and open up to Exodus with me. Um, and if you keep your finger there or some sort of marker there, I'd like to ask you to also turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, um, real quick before we get going, uh, just a sweet spirit, I think, to have the body pray earnestly for um, its mission, and um, just thank you. A couple prayer requests, if you guys would, this week, um, pray for Noah um, as he leads us. I know you guys prayed for that today, but particularly pray for that this week. Um, and then Noah, I, it was kind of crazy, I was able to uh, FaceTime or Skype with him from the Dominican Republic uh, the other day, and uh, he shared with me a couple of physical needs that they have, and that is um, he needs a refrigerator. Uh, when I talked to him, it was preferably that day that they'd find one. Um, and then secondly, a car. Um, uh, last year when we went, he did not have transportation, uh, but this year, uh, I guess to see that as a, as a nice value or a, a big benefit, I should say, for them to have. So uh, I want to encourage you to pray for that. He may already have one by now, I do not know, but uh, he, got he got the fridge. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So he has a fridge, he, vehicle, something to rent or something to purchase at a good price. So, uh, obviously, shipping his vehicle to the DR would not be cost-effective, uh, <laughs> unless it, you know, he could drive it there, but that might be a problem, float it there. All right, so, here we are, uh, working through the, the gospel, I will say this, uh, working through the kingdom, let me say this, we are on track to finish this thing in the eight weeks or so that I had planned to preach it. The only exception to that is next week uh, when Rusty preaches, instead of getting to preach whatever he wants to, he has to preach part two of this sermon um, because I'm not going to be able to get it all in today. Um, so uh, Rusty's going to finish up what I'm going to start today. So hopefully I don't make too much of a mess of the text so that he can, uh, he can do his work well and faithfully next week. He may have to correct a lot that I've said, but... Uh, Nevertheless, uh, we have so far, let's review very briefly, what was the first step in the kingdom uh, that we see? What do we, what's the, what, we, what do we call that? Not all at once. What did we call it? Starts with a P. The pattern. Yeah, I guess they do. Yeah, they do all start with a P. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, secondly, what happens to that kingdom? Starts with a P perished, right? right. The, so the pattern of the kingdom, the, then the perished kingdom. So we God's kingdom is perished because of the fall. And then what do we see happen? What did we talk about last week? The promised kingdom. We see God saying to Abraham, I will bring about my kingdom. That through you I will bless the earth. So let me remind us as we go through this again, that our goal is to not get lost in the details. Um, if you know me, um, 
I, I'm a big picture person, like I prefer that, but I like still have this tendency to like drive into the details. And I think it's just because it helps me understand the big picture. But unfortunately, when you're communicating, it's, it's, it's a hard balance because f- for me in, in my mind and as I've studied, uh, when I drive into the details, my brain is always connecting it back to the big picture, like always doing that. But in communication, it's hard to do that because the big picture may not be there. Or your brain might be such a detailed person that it doesn't drive it back to the big picture. So our goal in this is to stay at the big picture level and pull out a couple details that are pertinent to helping us understand the big picture. Uh, We could really get lost in lots of details as we're going to basically preach through all of Exodus and Leviticus today. Uh, So there's a lot of details to get lost in that. Uh, And I have roughly um, 20, 40, I have 40 minutes for us to do this. So uh, with that said, we must move past line number two of my eight pages, 18 pages of notes. Uh, our goal is not to get lost. Right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover between this week and next week a span of almost a thousand years of Israel's history. Um, no, that's not doing justice to Israel's history, but we're going to span from Abraham, or particularly Isaac today, through the Davidic kingdom between this week and next week. But today we're going to get through the law. Uh, so a very small yet very large portion of Israel's history. So with that said, let's read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And Father, as we study your word today, let us see, above all else, your faithfulness, your graciousness, your loving kindness, your plan your sovereignty. Father, let us see that. All of that is for your glory. And Father, we do not come, uh, or we come rather to your altar with empty hands, but those hands don't have to have anything in them because the altar has already been set and displayed with the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, his spilt blood is the substitute for the sacrifice that we should have to offer. And Father, let us see above all else today that you not only provided and declared for us a way to salvation, but Father, you provided the the one and only payment for that salvation. Father, let us see this deep and rich, uh, richly in the text of the Old Testament as we study your word today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, here's what I want us to do. We want to keep this verse in the back of our mind as we work through uh, this 
these passages in Exodus. Now, I want to encourage you, if you've not been keeping up on reading through some of this, I would advise you to go back and read all of Genesis, read all of Exodus, read all of Leviticus, okay? Uh, do it. Um, it's a necessity. Um, and then, uh, otherwise you're going to get behind very quickly, as now we're going to start spanning greater lengths of Scripture uh, as we go. So go back and read these, because I, I don't have time, as we're going to read, basically cover Exodus, Leviticus, I don't have time for us to read all of these words today. Uh, so I encourage you to go back and, and do that. So, this week, basically, there's four elements to the kingdom promise that we saw last week. Four elements. The people, the land, the blessing slash rule, and then the promise of a king. So we've talked about this a lot. The people, the land, the blessing or slash rule, and then the promise of the king. That's kind of the fourth one that might be a little bit of a foreign concept, but we see, we will see that come true as part of God's kingdom, that there is a king. Particularly we'll see that in the Davidic kingdom or the Davidic covenant. So our goal is to see how God's promise of the kingdom is, par- is uh, partially fulfilled in the history of Israel. So we want to see today how the kingdom is partially fulfilled in the history of Israel. Let me give you a few things to note down. I think this would be helpful. Today, we want to see God's people through Genesis 12 through Exodus 18. God's people in Genesis 12 through Exodus 18. Secondly, God's rule and blessing in Exodus 19 all the way through Leviticus. God's rule and blessing, Exodus 19, all the way through Leviticus. Then in preparation for next week, God's place in God's land in Numbers through Joshua. And then lastly, God's king in Judges through Second Chronicles. God's king, Judges through Second Chronicles. For this week, though, it's just going to be God's people... God's rule and blessing. So, let's move forward. God's people, Genesis 2, if you look at your notes, Genesis 12 through Exodus 18. The promise, alright? So let's be reminded of the promise. Genesis 12, 2. I will make you into a great nation. This is what God promises Abraham and his descendants. I will make you into a great nation. At Genesis 12, 2. Exodus 6, 7. <clears throat> he says, God says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. I will take you as my own people, I will be your God. So this is the promise, this is what we're going to work through. So, kind of as, as, a, as a plan for today, is we're going to talk about different, uh, essentially, narratives. I'm just going to give a very quick uh, overview of those, talk about some application to those, and then move forward. When we get to the second piece or God's rule, then we're going to talk about the law, and there's some good uh, uh, details that we need to work through in the law. But for now, what we're going to do is work through kind of different stories that progress in the narrative of Exodus. Uh, so with that, we start Abraham and Isaac. And if you're looking at your notes, it's, it's, we, I, I wrote there, it is only a work of God that will suffice for bringing the gospel to reality. 
So if I could summarize the story of Isaac, it, will be just, it would be just that. It's only a work of God that will suffice for bringing the gospel to reality. So let me review the story of Abraham and Isaac. During this time of fulfilling this promise of God to Abraham, God will be making Abraham's descendants great, and he'll be making his name known, right? So he's going to make a great nation. The problem is the story gets off to a rough start. If you're familiar with the story, Sarah is barren. She's unable to have children. And what's interesting, or what's sad, is that after a period of time passes by of Sarah not able to have children, they decide to take the making a great nation into their own hands. And so Abraham sleeps with Hagar, or Hagar, and, and then later gives birth to Ishmael. Now, if you want to know a little bit of history, this is where the Muslims believe the whole story goes wrong. Instead of the promise going through Isaac, as we'll see in the story, it should have gone through Ishmael. So that's where we get it all wrong, and they have it all right. Ishmael is the rightful heir to Abraham's promise, not Isaac. Clearly the Bible shows that it's Isaac. So what we see here, what's interesting, and again, there's a lot of details I'm just going to have to leave out, but we see here that if the gospel is going to come about, it's only God who can do it. That Abraham can't just go make his way through making a great nation. Only God is going to be the one who can do it. Let me remind us of a New Testament verse, Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9. Some of you are familiar with this. But, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. One day, God speaks to Abraham and reassures him of his promise. He reassures him that Sarah will give birth to a child. And indeed, Sarah does. And his name's Isaac. And we see that quickly, that it's only a work of God that will suffice for bringing the gospel to reality. So what he does, so I'm going to make, I mean, think about this. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Oh, by the way, give your wife that can't have kids. But I'm telling you, she's going to have a kid. And then after time, no, 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 there's, there's no way. I'm going to do it over here. I'm going to make my own way. And God says, no, 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 I told you that I was going to make you into a great nation. It was going to be this way. And so God reminds us or shows us this picture that if it's going to happen, only God can do it. Now what's interesting is now God, so God first gives him a, a, a wife who can't have kids, who then eventually has a kid because that's what God had promised. Then he tells I, Abraham, gives him another obstacle. He says, go sacrifice Isaac. I think what is happening is God is going to reassure Abraham that he is the only God worthy to be worshipped. I think God is pushing Abraham to continue placing his trust in him and not in anything else, including his son. So imagine this. Imagine Abraham, make your name great, nation great. Your wife can have kids. All of a sudden now God fulfills his promise. She has a kid. Who is Abraham? What's the chance or the potential of Abraham placing now his trust in Isaac that now all of a sudden now because I have Isaac the nation will be made great 
No, it's not because I have Isaac that the nation and my name will be made great. It's because God has promised to make my name great or make his name great through my descendants. Not because I simply have Isaac. So God says, go sacrifice Isaac. So how do we understand the sacrifice of Isaac? I think we see Abraham placing his hope and trust in the fact that he has a son now. So God makes Abraham offer up a sacrifice for the sin against his son. What's interesting though is in the moment of trial, the moment of trial, Abraham, or Isaac's up on the altar, Abraham getting ready to sacrifice him, and God provides a substitute. He provides an animal there for Abraham to sacrifice instead. instead of having to sacrifice his son. And we see here, once again, the gospel that God's means of salvation is through substitutionary atonement. Through the substitute, one will die in the place of another. So, quickly, my question here, are you trusting in yourself to bring the kingdom to reality in your life? I mean, Abraham's trusting in his own self. Are you trusting in your hard work to bring the kingdom to reality, whether that's in your life, the life of those around you? Are you trusting in your prayers? Are you placing hope in your abilities? If you're not a follower, are you trusting in what you can bring to the table? Let me, let's think about this. So Christian, you've got growth in your life. You're looking at the life and you're going, man, I've, I've grown in my knowledge of God and things are going well. My question is this, are you placing your hope now in that fruit or are you placing your hope in the God who brought about that fruit? If we're not careful then, what happens is that fruit begins to wither because trials come and we begin to forget what it is that we learned about God. Now all of a sudden we find ourselves forgetting and, and, and our life and our joy has, has just plummeted and then we go, well, uh, where's, where's God and all these questions. And when the problem was we were placing our hope in the wrong thing. Yes, we should be joyful that we have fruit, but we have joy in God who brought about the fruit. I think we see Abraham placing his joy in the fruit of God's work in his life instead of in God. And so God says, you're going to sacrifice it. And then in that provides us ultimately a picture of substitutionary atonement. So moving forward in the story, we have Abraham and Isaac. Secondly, we see Jacob and Esau. So Isaac has two sons. If I could summarize this, God chooses according to his purpose not our merit. God chooses according to His purpose, not our merit. We see this all throughout Scripture. This is a, a big theme that we see, but we particularly see here, here in Jacob and Esau. So Isaac will now be the one to carry on toward the promises of God since Abraham, his father, has died. He marries Rebekah. They have twin sons, Jacob and Esau. 
What's peculiar in the situation is that even though Esau is the oldest, it is Jacob who receives his father's blessing. Now if you understand lineage and all these things, it always goes to the firstborn son. This is a big deal. Jacob's line, though, as the younger son, was, will be the line of promise. We have to ask the question, why? Why did God choose the younger son in the situation? What also kind of magnifies that is that the younger son was also a, 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 a son of not good character. So not only was he the younger, he was a, not a good dude. Not that Esau was sinless. The name Jacob literally means deceiver. Hmm. And God yet chooses him. I think we see this theme or principle here that God does not choose people on merit. Let's let, help, let's let Paul help us understand this. Romans 9, 10 through 13. Paul says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, this is Rebekah, this is Isaac's wife, our forefather Isaac, sorry, by, I guess he says that, doesn't he? Children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, listen to these words, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Wow. So much to say, but let me say it with this. If you're a Christian today, it's because of God's sovereign choice. God clearly demonstrates election here. It is not based upon their merit. It is based upon God's sovereign choice. There should be no such thing as a prideful Christian. Blows my mind, even, and I struggle with pride myself. They had, listen, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Let me say this too. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, it's not that God hasn't chose you. It's that you don't know whether he's chose you or not. Um, and the Bible would tell us to cry out to God. And his sovereignty, and submit yourself to him. You don't know whether you are, we don't know whether you are. Only God does. I think our response, which is a side note, our responsibility as Christians is to pretend as if everyone is. To work towards seeing salvation, the kingdom become a reality in everyone's life. So, but we see here from the text, God clearly chooses Jacob, not on anything that he had done, but it was God who chose him. A couple quick applicational questions. Did you first choose God or did God first choose you? Let me ask you this question. Did God know ahead of time that you would choose him, so therefore he simply placed his reactionary stamp of approval on your most excellent choice of God, rather than on all the other idolatry choices of this world? This is, Paul explains it that before they had done good or bad, matter of fact, before they were even born, God chooses one. 
and not the other. I think the moment that we begin thinking that we get some sort of credit for choosing God is the moment you have put a rotting animal carcass on the altar upon which only God deserves to place Jesus. God first chose us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God chose us. Just for clarification, I think the Bible teaches free will, but it doesn't teach Jesus plus our actions. It's Jesus alone. Moving forward. Joseph. So Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is Jacob's favorite. The promised land is far off, if I could summarize this. The promised land is far off, but God still ensures his promise. Promises. Promises. So quickly. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph is his favorite, though. Right? Joseph is his favorite. The brothers in jealousy sell Joseph into slavery, where he ends up in Egypt. But his brothers tell their father that he has died. Um, in Egypt, then, so now Joseph is in Egypt. In Egypt, after staying in jail, we know he's thrown into jail. He winds up interpreting dreams for Pharaoh. So he ends up connected with Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh has these dreams. Jacob ends up, I'm sorry, Joseph ends up interpreting these dreams as that they need to prepare for a great famine that's coming. So in the midst of this, Joseph is made the prime minister of Egypt. And Joseph leads Egypt to prepare for a famine. But where his family is from, or where they're at in the land of Canaan, they face this same famine as well, but they're not prepared for the famine, so they end up coming to Egypt for food, to survive. But I want to, before we jump further in the story, I want to point out something. I want to point out that we don't want to miss the very fact that the descendants of Abraham are forced to go to Egypt, even in light of the covenant promises. And and so even in the midst of that happening, when it appears that they are becoming a mighty nation of God, even in the midst of that, the fulfillment of the promises are still far off and still inaccessible. And God is not done with His task. Just simply because they're there and they're in this land and they're being the people of God, it's still far off. So what happens, they end up going to Egypt. In Egypt, they discovered that who their... Um, who their, uh, who their brother is, the prime minister. And I want to read to you what, what he says to them when he sees his brothers. Genesis 50, verse 19 through 20. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. <clears throat> So it's interesting, we see with Jacob, or Joseph and his brothers, 
here we have Joseph or his brothers not acting as the people of God, instead acting in jealousy. And so what do they do? They get rid of their brother, tell the father that he's died. And then God takes care of Joseph, sustains Joseph, brings him to a position of great power so that when God's people need saving, Joseph, God, are there to save his people. So what they meant for evil, God meant for good, and ultimately God continues to sustain and work towards fulfilling his promises. Moving forward in the story. I am who I am. In summary, don't miss the revelation of God's character in the story of his salvation. Don't miss the revelation of God's character in the story of his salvation. I'll explain that in a few moments. So Jacob and his whole family now moved to Egypt. We're pushing right through the story. They moved to Egypt to be with Joseph and settle there. But by the beginning of the book of Exodus, they have been enslaved. They've been enslaved, and God will have to set them free if they're ever going to become the people that he has promised. They have to be set free if God is ever going to. His promise. Let's read Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So what happens is they're in slavery, and God hears their prayers, and God begins his plan to rescue his people by appearing to Moses in a burning bush. Right? We're familiar with the story of the burning bush. Moses, let me remind us here just to keep in language consistency or continuity with what we've talked about. Moses is to be the mediator of God's acts in fulfilling the covenant promises made to the patriarchs. Patriarchs meaning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on. So God tells Moses that he used to go tell Pharaoh to what? Let my people go. Isn't like a song? Something like that? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, right? Whoa, whoa. Let my people go. Oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, sorry. I'll let that sink in for a few more moments. Moses says, who am I, what, what name am I to tell them of you? God says to tell him that my name is I am who I am. Much to say, but it seems to be that God is saying that no one name can encapsulate my character. No one name can describe the totality of who I am. But instead, if you want to know who I am, we must watch him act in history on behalf of his people. And we see God act on behalf of His people. I want to remind us at this point that the Bible accomplishes two tasks at one time. First of all, it tells the story of God's work of salvation. We see this, right? We've, 
We've already seen some cycles of this, some foreshadowing of, of this. But then secondly, it reveals God's character at the same time. It reveals God's character at the same time. I like what Von Roberts said. He says, sometimes we miss the point by asking too quickly, what is the text saying to me? We miss the point. We move too quickly to what is it saying. I think a good first question is, what does this tell me about God? What does this text tell me about God? And what we see so far is that God will not forget His promises. Right? He's not forgotten them yet. It's just not happened the way maybe you or I would have done it. But He knows what's best. But God will not forget His promises. He will always remember His people. So moving forward in the story, we see salvation by substitution. God has provided a means of escape through the sacrifice of another. Hmm, we've already seen this a couple times. We're going to see it again. So Moses delivers God's command to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh refuses to let them go, right? So then we have the story of the ten plagues. Still no positive response by Pharaoh after ten plagues. He must be a moron. So what God decides to do, and this wasn't like God goes, oh, well, I guess since ten haven't worked, we're going to try something different. No, matter of fact, God had this plan. Matter of fact, this happened exactly the way God wanted it to. So that we could get to kind of the climax of this small part of the story where God shows us substitutionary atonement. So what happens is God is going to send the death angel to take the firstborn of all of the people in the region. All the Egyptians. And so what happens though is God, though, provides a way out for the sinful firstborn of the Israelites. He says to take this animal, spread its blood on the doorframe, or kill this lamb, spread the blood on the doorframe, and the angel will pass over. Once again, something dies so that something might live. Exodus 12, 23, For the Lord God will pass through to strike the Egyptians, And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So it wasn't that the the, uh, Israelites' firstborn didn't deserve to die. They did. But God provides a substitution for that. Don't miss that. God is teaching us and the Israelites a vital lesson here. God, again, saves by substitution. The people deserve to die. But what's awesome is that the Passover here is only a shadow. The reality will be infinitely greater. Listen to what John the Baptist says. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you look at Matthew 26, John 19, we don't have time right now. There's no coincidence that Jesus dies at Passover time. The deliverance, I'm sorry, God is revealing more clearly His plan for redemption. Each pass brings about more clarity. Each pass reveals it more to us. 
Like what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our, sa- our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So if God is the one who must provide the substitute for us, my question is this. Why do we keep trying to offer up things? What do we keep trying to, even post being saved, try to offer up things? What's my good works? It's how well I'm doing that keeps me in right relationship with God. It's God that could, is the only one who could provide the substitute for that. Moving on in the story, salvation by conquest. <clears throat> Miraculous redemption. Miraculous redemption. <clears throat> so what happens is the Passover happens, and Pharaoh finally says, all right, get out of here. Go, leave my place. You've killed all of my firstborn. Leave. And then... He changes his mind. They're gone. He says, no, I want them back. So we see the Israelites come to the Red Sea. We know the story. They're powerless. Think about this. The Israelites at the Red Sea, they are powerless to save themselves. They will be squashed. They will be taken back into captivity. They cannot save themselves. And yet, God acts in a mighty way. The Israelites walk right through the parting of the Red Sea. And as the Egyptians are coming through the Red Sea, God lets the water back into place, drowning the army. I think what we see is the act of salvation here for the Israelites foreshadows what God achieved through the death of Jesus. That if God's going to save His people, it's going to be through a miraculous redemption. Where the people will be powerless to save themselves. And He will miraculously save His people. So we have to ask this question. Why has God not yet fulfilled the promises? Why is God taking so long to fulfill these promises? Like What we've covered so far just didn't happen overnight. Why did God bring His people into Egyptian slavery? How do we interpret and understand these events? I think we have a couple key questions that I would encourage you to ask as we're reading through these passages. One would be, what of the gospel is being revealed here? It's a good interpretive question. What of the gospel is being revealed here? What shadow of the gospel is being displayed? I would encourage you, obviously, we have to understand what's going on in the context here. What's God saying to the people? That would be first. But we have to ask this question. What are the Gospels being revealed here? So, so Israel was brought into Egypt, and the patriarchs never possessed the land. Because God intended to reveal the way into His kingdom. So God, again, God is revealing more clearly as we go along 
the, his kingdom, the way into his kingdom, how his kingdom is going to function, how we're going to be his people, how he's going to save his people and bring them, and how he's going to rule his people. And he is painting this picture beautifully for us. That's why just chucking the Old Testament's not an option. So this way that he's going to bring his people into the kingdom is involving a miraculous redemption from a bondage that holds us and keeps us out of the kingdom. Think about that. The Israelites are in Egyptian bondage. They cannot become the kingdom that God had created them to be. They cannot become the people of God in slavery and underneath the rulership of something else. And yet God rescues them from that through a substitutionary atonement, and then God does a miraculous way, saves them again to bring them to be His people. He does the same thing in our lives. Except not from a physical bondage, at least at its fundamental level, but from a spiritual bondage. Something that we cannot help, but only God can. So the Exodus... Something to notate will remain a key model of understanding redemption among the life of the people of Israel. We'll see God's moving forward. God's people, God delivers, demands, and draws near. So God, we're going to pick up the pace here a little bit more. God has indeed brought about a great salvation for his people. Now, instead of heading straight to the promised land, though, God brings them to Mount Sinai, where the rest of Exodus will focus on the giving of the law and the establishment of the tabernacle. Right? So instead of going straight to Canaan, we're going to Mount Sinai. The law is going to be given. The establishment of the tabernacle. God says to them, Exodus 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So we see this people promise as partially being fulfilled here. He has this people. So we see from the actions recounted in the story that God delivers, He demands, but then He draws near. He wants to bless His people. God wants to bless His people. So, moving forward. So we see God's people. God has brought His people out through all of this and showed us these great pictures now we see God's rule and blessing. The promise, Genesis 12, 2, he says to Abraham, I will bless you. Now, let's look, just think through, if you pay attention to any news articles and things that go on today, we see a, a, a trend, at least I've seen a trend, of people speaking on the oppression of authority. All the time. Well, the, you know, the, the government's barren, and some of that might be is, not might be, is uh, accurate, uh, but we just have a natural tendency, just a quick scan of life, people around us, ourselves, we have this tendency to view authority as oppressive, that all authority is oppression. Go back to the garden. Satan accuses God as being oppressive in his authority. He wants to keep this from you. Just look at our culture. We've, in our culture, 
created this authority structure that is completely flattened. We want it to be like this. In the church, in marriage, in parenting even. Oh, you know, you don't want to come down on your kids too hard, you know. That won't let them sprout into who God is, or who the world wants them to be, whatever. We tend to have this negative attitude towards authority. We have to be reminded there's nothing negative about God's authority. To be under God's authority is to be under God's blessing. And to be under God's authority includes being under the authorities that He has sovereignly placed. I mean, think about this. When Adam and Eve live underneath the moral legislation of God, they live in the blessing of God. When they choose to live under the moral legislation of their own autonomy or who they are, what they want, they live underneath the curse of God. So here, if the people, if the nation of Israel is going to live underneath the blessing of God, then they're going to have to be taught how to live under God's rule. Von Roberts says, If the rejection of God's law brings death and curse, the restoration of the law enables life and blessing. So God's law. I could summarize this for you in one statement. The revealing of our sin, our Savior, and God's standards. The revealing of our sin, our Savior, and God's standards. Whew. The law is given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Right? So stick with me here. It's not intended, though, to be the means by which anyone gets right with God. Right? And we're going to talk about this a little further as we go. But that's a key phrase, something to help us understand here, that we'll see it's not intended to be the means by which anyone gets right with God. The Israelites are already God's people by His grace. Where do we see that at? Exodus 20, verse 2. God says, before He gives the law, before the law is given, this is what He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You are already my people. I don't See, uh, my understanding of the text here is that this is not, then, the law is, the law is not given as a means by which the people are redeemed. They have already been brought as God's people. He redeems them before they receive the law. And their obedience is not to be an attempt to earn salvation. It's a response to salvation. The law is not the path to membership in the covenant people of God, but instead is required for the enjoyment of blessing within the covenant of God. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So this holy nation of God should reflect also the character of a holy God. Leviticus 11, verse 44. And be holy, for I am holy. So now we get into some thick stuff here. The relevance of the law for the church. The relevance of the law for the church. Let me tell you guys right now, this is where the modern church, 
I think, goes awry pretty often. What's the relevance of the law? There's much confusion when it comes to understanding the purpose of the law for us today. Part of the confusion comes from a misunderstanding of the attitude of the law in the New Testament. Let me read a couple verses. Romans 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul in Romans 3, but now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been been manifested apart from the law. Let me read to you, Graham Goldsworthy says this, describing the typical Christian's view of the law. He says this, and I I think he's spot on. When we think of the law, typical Christian says, God gave Israel the law at Sinai as a program of works whose goal is salvation. The history of Israel shows how complex how complete was the inability of Israel to achieve the required standard. God, therefore, in a kind of desperation, scrapped plan A, salvation by works of the law, and instituted an emergency plan B, the gospel. The Old Testament, then, becomes essentially the record of the failure of plan A. Its relationship to the New Testament is almost wholly negative. W-H-O-L-L-Y, negative. So, how do we understand the law Rightly. In order to gain the right perspective of the law, we must look at the Old Testament and the New Testament treatments of it. We don't have time to do a ton of that, but very quickly, we have to look at both the negative comments and the positive comments. But first, in the Old Testament, let's think about this. We have to view the law in light of two major events. Two major events. First, the Exodus. Second, the covenant with Abraham. These are crucial if we're going to understand the law. Exodus, covenant, Abraham. First of all, the Exodus. If anything means freedom from bondage, it's the exodus. If the exodus means anything, it's freedom from bondage. The law, therefore, cannot be another means of bondage. Otherwise, God would just kept them in Egypt. We have to put the law in the context of God's purpose to make a people for himself on the basis of his grace. So the law must be a means for God to make a people for himself on the basis of his grace, not the basis of their works, not on the basis of their merit, but of his grace. Secondly, the, the covenant with Abraham. This, too, was an act of grace. So the Exodus, the covenant, these become a model of salvation by grace. It doesn't make any sense that God would stop the plan of salvation by grace to bring about bondage to salvation by works. It doesn't make any sense. Golds really says this, the narrative of Exodus does not allow such violence to be done to its theological continuity. He's right on. Like to take salvation by grace and now all of a sudden a salvation by law is like violently ripping the text apart. Doesn't make any sense. We must conclude that the law in this context is a part of the program of grace. This is all part of God's plan to fulfill his promise to Abraham. It's not plan A, not plan B. It's just God's plan. It's the same plan. See the continuity. So the heart of the law, we think of the law, the heart of the law is the Ten Commandments. Notice what God says at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, just as a review. Exodus 2, or Exodus 20, verse 1 through 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house 
of slavery. God has already saved his people. The law is given to the people of God after they become the people of God by God's grace. Then the law spells out what it means to be the people of God. What he tells them reflects in various ways his character. Their faithful obedience then in return reflects the character of God to the nations, to the world. What a marvelous idea. The people of God reflect the character of God. Huh. So, quickly, passages in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. We looked at that one already, also verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 21 of Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Write this one down, Luke 4, verse 21. And just Jesus, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, as he's reading from Isaiah. This is key to helping us understand the purpose of the law. Jesus is saying that... I am fulfilling, at the very least, this portion of Scripture in your presence. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So here's Jesus saying, after the resurrection, let's look back at the Scriptures and let me show you how they speak of me. So we see, again, Christ reaffirming are affirming for us that the Old Testament is speaking of him. It's telling the story, painting this picture of him. So obviously the law has relevance. Jesus says he came to fulfill it. Paul says we're not underneath of the law, so how do we understand, how do we apply? And there's, I know so much, there's like so many books written on this. can't even begin, but in our frail attempt this morning... With this understanding of the law, then how do we apply the law? So it's clear that the moral prescriptions of the law, those are easy to understand. Thou shalt not steal. That's pretty easy. But what about the ritual details and laws concerning what is clean, what is unclean? Um... Let me read to you uh, an example of how I would not suggest going about this. Uh, In efforts in some camps to understand the law, they would say, well, there are certain aspects of the law that are covenant dependent, some that are covenant transcendent, although some of that might have some legitimacy, but let me read this to you. So, So the covenant dependence we don't follow, but the covenant transcendent we do says, uh, you know, they're not labeled as this. And so one must exercise judgment in determining which is which. A rule of thumb test is to ask, can or should this statute be complied with in a new covenant era exactly and literally as commanded? If the answer is yes, it's transcendent. If the answer is no, it's dependent. In making such decisions for myself, I rely on the wisdom of a saying that's not found in Scripture. If it isn't broken, don't try to fix it. So if the literal commandment is appropriately performable today as during the time of Moses, then I do not search for an alternative. (laughs) So, 
I don't think that that captures. That doesn't capture. Uh, doesn't even begin to capture the point of the Old Testament. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. What? Completely misses the point. The whole thing points towards Christ. We must understand it in light of Christ. In order to do so, we must first understand that the law itself anticipates a future fulfillment. Go back, look at Deuteronomy 30. Some passages in Ezekiel as well. Moses in Deuteronomy 30 is anticipating a transformation of the heart. He longs for the transformation of the heart to take place. So even in the law, in the midst of the law, there's a desire and, a, and, and this recognition that it will have a future fulfillment. We ask the question, I'm sorry, the fulfillment is made in Christ, we know this, and Paul interprets the Old Testament in light of this fulfillment. So we ask the question, how is the law fulfilled in Christ? And through that we can see what God's intention was in the law. How is this fulfilled in Christ? See who Christ, uh, then through that we see how God, now that may be a little bit of an oversimplification, but work with me for there. Let me give you a couple examples. The Sabbath. Let's start with the Sabbath. How do we understand the Sabbath? Are we to literally follow the Sabbath? Well, what have we talked about in the Sabbath thus far? We talked about the Sabbath. I mean, that the Sabbath day, the day and there was night, is not there explaining the Sabbath. So we understand, I believe, the Sabbath, and, and, and later by Hebrews' confirmation, that the Sabbath intention in the Sabbath, or what God is showing us in the Sabbath, is that we are to live in the Sabbath. So Adam and Eve were to live in the rest of of God post-creation. That doesn't mean that they didn't work, but that they were living in the rest of God. I think when we get to the Sabbath then, for the Israelites post-fall, it's a reminder to them, if anything, that they can't live in the rest of God because of the fall. This is anticipating a, a fulfillment that Hebrews then later says, in chapter 4, I would encourage you to go back and read this later. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, where he connects the Sabbath to the rest that all believers in Christ will experience. So, and then that Christ's return will consummate this rest. So, does that mean that the Sabbath we just avoid? Does that mean it's gone? We don't pay any attention to the Sabbath. It's under the law. I'm not under the law. So how do I understand that? No, I'm not underneath the law. But this still has application. How does it have application? Because in Christ, we experience the eternal rest of God that we experience partially now and we'll experience fully in the future. So in that sense, the law is very applicable to us as Christ followers in the new covenant. So in one sense, no, we don't literally have to uh, follow that aspect of the law, but it has great application for us. But it's understood differently, I believe, because Jesus fulfills that 
aspect. Now, as a side note, I would say that uh, we do see a pattern of living in that, where we should take six days and then a reminder of rest on the seventh day. But as far as Saturday, Sabbath, keep it, Christians today, Sabbatarians would say, Sunday's the Sabbath, we must keep that. And I think you're missing the picture of the law. It's not about the day that we do it. Yes, it's a pattern of living, but ultimately it's a reminder that those who've gone before us, the Israelites, could not experience this rest because it was a reminder for them of how, they, how their ancestors had failed that. It's also a reminder to us of that as well, but then it's also a reminder to us that in Christ, we can experience the rest in God through Jesus Christ. Next example, food laws. Food laws. How do we understand food laws in the Old Testament? Paul clearly, you can look at this, I don't have time today, Paul clearly does not think believers should be required to adhere to food laws. Why? Pig is good. That's what Dave said. I agree. Pig, bacon. Yep. If you've not seen the uh, five points of a baconist, make sure you check that out. So why? Why? In the Old Testament, the purity laws and food laws, why? How do we understand it? My question would be, what is the goal? What was God intending to display? What was his heart in the law? I think when we look at that, they were designed as a picture of the holiness required in order to enter God's presence in the tabernacle or the temple. So God, these food laws is a, was a way of setting this apart. Where, where's some help on this? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9 through 10. Let's read this. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So what's he saying there? That these food laws could not perfect the inner side of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So I think... What Hebrews is saying is that these food laws did nothing for the inside. But when Christ comes, the transformation takes place on the inside. God changes us from the inside out. So what's the point? The point is not observing food laws. The point is being holy and separate in order to be and enter into the presence of God. But now no longer is God dwelling in the tabernacle of the temple, but now God is dwelling inside of us. So what's the application then of the law for us when it comes to food laws? Do we just ignore it and say forget it and we just move on being who we are? No. We miss the point of the food laws. The point of the food laws is for us to be holy and separate as the people of God. So it has great application for us today. So do we literally obey the food laws? No. But do, because Christ now has fulfilled the food laws. He is perfectly set aside from God. Then through Christ comes transformation of us from the inside out where we are becoming holy and set apart from God. So the question, so the point is, we have ethical, I believe, application of the food laws where we need to live as holy as the people of God as we are the place in which God dwells as he did in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So we just, do we just ignore it? Do we just throw it aside? No. We do, we miss the point. So for Christians just to go, ah, the Old Testament, it's the Old Covenant, ah, we got Jesus now, it's good to go. That, that, that's where we fall into this 
well, let me just sin more so that grace may abound. We miss the character of God. But we don't go back and we just go, okay, God said to don't eat piggy, so we don't eat piggy. What was his point? What was his intention? What was his heart? His heart was to set aside a people that for us to recognize, get this, the law, the, even in the tabernacle and the way God had set up the boundaries and, and what was supposed to be there and the veil was all to paint the picture that we just can't flippantly go before God. That there's a requirement of us. He paints that picture. Now on this side of the new covenant, we see that Christ fulfills that he perfectly, perfectly fulfills that. And so us through Jesus, we understand that our lives through Christ are ultimately fulfilled as perfectly able to enter into the presence of God. So, are the purity laws abolished? Yes, in the sense that believers no longer have to observe them literally. No, in the sense that they remain the Word of God and have ethical application to the Christian. Here's the deal. Not just, so in the Old Testament we have these food laws. For us, our whole life is to be holy and set apart for God. We don't get to get, just do this little action. That's missing the point. Our whole lives will be set aside. So with this understanding, in summary, we don't just chuck the law. On the other hand, we don't become law lovers and therefore idol worshipers. Those are two extremes. We don't just chuck it. We don't start to worship it. We see how it's fulfilled in Jesus in order to see God's intent. Then the intent becomes our application. This way, the law has been fulfilled yet still carries relevance for us today. In summary, in summary, the law, first of all, reveals our sin. The law reveals our sin. For by works, this Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Secondly, the law reveals our Savior. The law reveals our Savior. Galatians 3, verse 23 through 24. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law's role, guys, was to prepare for Christ. It convicts us of our sin and helps us to see our need of Jesus. The law. Read Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Last, or thirdly, the law reveals God's standards. Go back and read Matthew chapter 5 or 17 through 20 there. We'll skip it for this morning. All right, very quickly, God's presence, moving forward. We cannot enter into God's presence apart from His provision. We cannot enter into God's presence apart from His provision. So now that God's people are under His rule, they're able to enjoy His presence. A couple quick summary points so we can move forward. About done. 
If you look at the tabernacle, again, lots of strict requirements for the tabernacle, for the place where God will dwell. Why? The tabernacle shows us a couple things. One, that man cannot be left to design things without God's revelation. Otherwise, the heart of man will create something else that doesn't reflect the character of God, but only the evil inclinations of his heart. Man is incapable, guys, hear this. Man is incapable of portraying God without falling into idolatry. Did you hear that? That has great application for us today. Just point of speculation, I find it interesting that God did come during a period of time where there couldn't be a, a million, billion pictures taken of Jesus for which us to remember him visibly by. Just an interesting thought to ponder. Even in the tabernacle, we were reminded that man must have the mediation of a priest and a substitutionary sacrifice in order to make things right with God. Second to last point. Sacrifices. The people can live because the animal has died. The people can live because the animal has died. So, now we have the question. God has this tabernacle. He has his people. He has his tabernacle. Now, how can God, though, live amongst a sinful people? A holy God, sinful people. I mean, from the beginning, the Israelites could not keep God's law. And thus were served judgment. So God gives them the sacrificial system. Sacrifices are offered every day for the sin of the people. They also have what's called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Uh, we've talked about this before here, but high priest, two goats, one goat is a sin offering for the people. Blood was sprinkled on the atonement cover, right? The mercy seat or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing God looking down at the law and at the sins of the people through the blood of the animal. Now instead... Christ, blood covers. We're going to talk about that in a second. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the people can live because the animal has died. The people can live. The results of the atonement are seen then in the second goat, where the sins of the people are confessed over, and then that goat is driven far away. Let's think about that for us today. We'll get there in a second. God has dealt with their sin and they can continue living as His people. Let me application question. Do you live as though your sin is still right in front of you? Or do you live as though God has placed it as far as the east is from the west? Last point. A better sacrifice. One day, one day, God will make for himself a permanent home in man's heart through the ultimate sacrifice of his son. A permanent home. God lives with his people. Think about this with me. But they cannot get very close. Right? Only one person can enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. And the sacrifices that were offered never fully deal with sin, but instead point beyond themselves to the perfect sacrifice. His death will deal with sin once and for all. Right? Christ 
once and for all. And then it opens the way into God's presence for all of us. And God, the veil is torn, we are told. The door to God's presence is now wide, all, wide open for all those who enter in the blood of Jesus Christ. In light of all the sacrificial talk, let me ask you a few questions and we'll be done. What sits on the altar of your heart? Does your kingdom sit there? Do you bring your merit in there? Is that what you bring into offer up in the depths of your soul that you are able to stand before God because of uh, some church covenant you've signed or because of some membership role you were on when you were five or because of baptism, because you study your Bible each day? You trust in your own abilities, your ability to save yourself. We need to ask God to remove these things from our hearts. Let's live, and let me give you a few statements here. Let's live knowing that God has chosen to make His kingdom a a reality among us, His people. Let's live knowing that. Let's live not trusting in our own merit, but in the merit of Christ. Let's live growing in knowledge of God's promises and the revelation of His character. Let's stop putting ourselves on the altar when God only accepts His substitute. Let's live knowing that we no longer live in the shadow of salvation to come, but in the reality of the salvation that is ours. And with that, let me read again for you Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, in, enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let me give you one last quote. Timothy Keller said this, Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Christ's blood cries out for our acquittal. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, uh, I pray that your word transform our hearts. Father, I um, pray that um, we would see the relevance of the law in our lives today. Or that we would see the picture of your salvation to the history of your people, the Israelites. And how they serve to show us this beautiful picture of a people that you will continue to make for yourselves yet fully realized as it becomes available to the nations. Father, help us to see your plan. It's always been salvation by grace through faith. Help us to live in the light of your word here. Father, um,
I know we covered lots of material today, lots of your word. Um, Father, I just pray that we would take it home and soak in it. We'd ask you to show it to our hearts. Father, transform us from the inside out. Father, we love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all, thanks for sticking with me. I know I push you beyond 12.30 today. <sighs> One of these days, y'all fire me, I guess, but, you know. <laughs> uh, if we were in a, I've been in churches where when that clock strikes noon, people leave. So, thank you for not leaving. <laughs> and Jess is watching.